Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us this week is Heron Greensmith, who is a senior research analyst for LGBTQI plus justice at Political Research Associates. Thanks so much for joining us, Heron. Thank you for having me. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about what you do and how you came to find yourself doing it? So as you said, I uh, research LGBTQI justice at Political Research Associates, which is a social justice organization in Boston, Massachusetts, where we research the right, all different factions of the right in order to build capacity among our partner organizations in order to bring about a feminist democracy. So I do our anti-LGBT research and what that looks like is mostly a focus on anti-trans advocacy right now. I look at anti-trans feminists and the Christian right and conversion therapists And I got here via law school. I'm a lawyer. I went to American University in Washington, D.C., after which I started lobbying for LGBT families, uh, for non-discrimination protections for prospective LGBT parents and LGBT kids in the foster system. And from there, I moved on to a think tank doing policy analysis, which is truly what I wanted to do and my strength and my joy. And uh then I moved on to doing policy analysis from the right. And here I am talking to you about the Christian right and anti-trans activism. Hooray. Well, <laughs> I feel like a harbinger of doom whenever I come <laughs> onto a podcast or something. Well, it's the end of Pride Month. Tomorrow, all of the rainbow avatars go away and uh, no. the 30, 33% extra buy thruple toothpaste goes off the shelves. Uh, but we've also had some negative things this Pride Month. Uh, there's been increased attacks on LGBTQ communities. Could you tell us about the sort of things you've been seeing happening? Yeah, we've been seeing an increase. Uh, I'm sure that that most of your viewers have seen our increase in state violence. I'm talking about our increase in laws that prevent trans girls from participating in scholastic athletics with the team that matches their gender identity. We've also seen a, you know, for the first time ever, bills criminalizing or penalizing uh, youth from accessing trans-affirming care or families from providing trans-affirming care for their children or doctors from providing trans-affirming care to their patients. So our state violence has, has heightened. Likewise, our organized and interpersonal violence has also heightened here in the United States, most notoriously with the Coeur d'Alene Pride in, in Idaho. Last weekend, there was a Pride event that was 
planned to be interrupted with intent to riot by members of a militia organization called the Patriot Front. And the FBI arrested 31 members of the Patriot Front who had driven to the Pride in a U-Haul van, I understand, with some shields and some, maybe some sticks, and then I think one smoke grenade with the express intent to, to riot and to cause some mischief at Pride. And then finally, we're seeing just an increase in interpersonal violence. We're seeing an increase in attacks on drag queen story hours. We're seeing an increase in people reporting just, you know, folks harassing them on the street. And that is all being fueled by heightened rhetoric on the Christian right. And then some pretty intense anti-trans rhetoric and mis- and disinformation around a couple of events recently. Would it be helpful if I talked about uh, what happened in the in the wake of the Uvalde shooting? Yeah, absolutely. In the hours right after the Uvalde shooting, which is, again, that's the, we had a mass school shooting in Uvalde, Texas a couple weeks ago, in which I believe it ended up being 21 people, mostly children, were killed by uh, a single shooter who uh, entered the building and entered a classroom. And we're still seeing the news from that shooting come forward and a lot of information about law enforcement's failure to act and protect the children. But in the hours right afterwards, a disinformation campaign arose out of 4chan and some other right-wing blogs that the shooter was transgender. And the way they developed and spread this disinformation was by taking real trans women's photos who looked slightly similar to the shooter, mashing them up into a meme and then spreading it everywhere. And it got so much play that a couple of representatives in our Congress actually shared the the disinformation, obviously really impacted these trans women's lives. One of them has been uh, reporting publicly about how the the death and, and, uh, and other rape threats she's been getting due to her uh, involvement in this disinformation campaign. I think something about that incident uh, is really illustrative of the the problem with combating disinformation, uh, you know, in terms of what actually happened in that classroom and outside it, we're still finding out a lot of things about it, but it only takes five seconds to put together a meme. What do you think can be done about that? Oh, that's a huge question, isn't it? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, there's so many things to do to combat mis- disinformation and misinformation that we don't do, that even doing a couple of these might make a difference. You know, we have notoriously poor moderation of our social media channels. So I'm thinking of an example where um, a friend and colleague of mine, Alejandro Caraballo, pointed out that a, I believe it was the spokeswoman of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis shared a picture of what she called a drag queen story hour with inappropriate content. Um, unfortunately, the picture was not from a drag queen story hour. It was from some, uh, an event entirely differently. And so she replicated this misinformation. It spun all over the internet that she was connected to. And a trans woman, Alejandra Caraballo, pointed out her error. She got piled on. Alejandra did. She got blocked from her Twitter account briefly. Meanwhile, the spokeswoman for Governor DeSantis still has the tweet up. The tweet ha- itself hasn't even been re- removed. More, I don't want to say more moderation, but human moderation is clearly superior to algorithmic AI moderation, which tends to favor pylons over actually moderating death threats and mis and disinformation. So the first I would say is robust moderation of our social media channels. The second is 
less kind of more of a squishy recommendation for how to combat mis and disinformation. And that is to fill the airways and the information waves with robust defense of justice for trans lives. In actually, Alejandro Caraballo and I wrote a piece for Teen Vogue magazine uh, a month or two ago, talking about how in the United States, at least, the major LGBT organizations have not been able to adequately address and combat the mis and disinformation speeding around the United States right wing right now. And I believe that that is because we lack the conviction and the courage to stand up and say very, very, very strongly, nope, trans people are our siblings. We believe in justice for trans lives. And to make statements as strong as those flying around the misinformation and disinformation spheres right now. The third way to combat uh, mis and disinformation, you know, (laughs) might be out of our capability right now. And that would be truly making some decisions about what kind of conversations we allow on the internet and what kind of spaces we allow on the internet. It's clear that unmoderated spaces have been a haven for radicalization, and yet those spaces continue to persist. And I don't think the United States has been able to competently, like like some countries, I'm thinking of Germany, for example, competently respond to the urgency of disinformation within spaces like 4chan, for example. We seem unable to reconcile our desire for free speech with a a better understanding of what hate speech actually does to increase radicalization and organize movements that are violent against trans people. Erin, I was watching the January the 6th committee hearings uh, during the course of the past week, and uh, it was noted that Donald Trump uh, the former president was gleaning much of his information about um, the election from various parts of the internet. Um, at the same time, the party, the Republican Party, seems to have been fairly thoroughly colonised by uh, Trumpists with the accompanying uh, increase in violent, hateful rhetoric directed at transgender people. In terms of the Republicans and the Democrats, is there much difference? And also, I guess, um, can you comment on the um, Supreme Court and what decisions it's making uh, about trans lives? I man, that's a, the difference between Republicans and Democrats. Just a just a small question. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I vote Democrat. I, I am a you know I, I am a leftist. I vote Democratic because well I, I vote leftist in local elections as as we all should. I vote Democratic in major elections. So I will say that I am certainly complicit in the the prolonging of our two-party system here in the United States, which has clearly been a failed experiment. I think that the parties have fundamental differences in the roots of their policies. I think that conservatives necessarily conserve and believe that there is a scarce amount of resources around to create the conditions for safety and health and a life free from violence. And so they need to decide who gets access to those resources and who doesn't. I don't think that, however you want to call us, progressives, Democrats, liberals, believe in that level of scarcity, meaning that there is truly not enough resources to create safety and health for all of us. But at the same time, so many mainstream Democrats are entangled with the 
wealth-making operation of capitalism and entangled with perpetuating capitalism, that it seems very difficult to pry them away from that system, make them understand that, you know, capitalism is one of the systems that is hurting people in this country, including transgender people, including LGBT people. So that is where I would say that the lines begin to blur. Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House and the head of the Democratic representatives, we have two chambers in our in our um, legislative branch, is the richest Congress member. And I think that's really important to, to note that she benefits from the perpetuation of capitalism as much as she will crow about protecting women and protecting LGBT people. At the end of the day, she is also protecting herself. And as far as the Supreme Court, there have not been any explicit LGBT cases on the docket this year, although a couple of years ago, Bostock v. Clayton County, which affirmed that in the United States, federal employment protections do include protections on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. That was decided a couple of years ago in an enormous watershed case for queer people in the United States. But what we're all holding our breath for is Dobbs, uh, which is the case that may or may not overturn Roe v. v. Wade here in the United States, Roe versus Wade, the case that said that there was a constitutional right to access an abortion in the United States. And if that is overturned, then uh, quite a number of states are already poised to recriminalize abortion here. So we're waiting with bated breath. It could be, it could have happened right now, y'all. It's 1015. I don't have my news up, but it could have happened. One other thing I've noted in uh, reading over some of the material you've published on this uh, subject is, along with the uh, US Constitution and, and federal law, there's all sorts of laws and uh, legal battles taking place on state and, and local levels across the United States. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how rights are being jeopardised by these attempts to introduce laws that repress uh, various freedoms in the United States, and what's the relationship between these campaigns and uh, some of the I guess, um, capitalist structures you've already mentioned in reference to the Congress and to Pelosi. Mm. We have a, a, a very robust Christian right advocacy um, infrastructure here in the United States, headed by enormous organizations like the Heritage Foundation, which is one of the largest, most conservative think tanks in the world, the Alliance Defending Freedom, which has offices all over the world and is one of the largest conservative legal organizations in the world. Uh, satellite organizations like the Family Policy Alliance and Family Research Council. And these organizations are at the heart of the legislative attempts and the litigation fights to, I, I could say, like eradicate trans people from public life. And I think that's accurate. But more precisely, as I said before, to stop trans girls from playing sports, to stop trans people from using the bathroom at school, to stop trans youth from being able to access life-saving health care, to stop any youth from accessing LGBT inclusive or even any sex comprehensive sexual education in the United States. And then in some states, we have a couple, um, we have some laws that discourage and prevent teachers and students from talking about LGBT issues. So there's a coalition of organizations called The Promise to America's Children, headed by the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Heritage Foundation, and the Family Policy Alliance. And they lay out 10 promises to our children. I guess our is in quotes there because I don't want anyone making these promises to my kids to 
protect them from lewd content, for example, to make sure their parents can still send them to conversion therapy if their parents want to, um, to make sure that uh, they can't access trans-affirming care. So these these Christian right organizations are at the heart of these litigation and legislation policy advocacy avenues. And these same organizations are being funded by the millionaires and billionaires at the top of the financial heap on the Christian right. So billionaires like Betsy DeVos, who you might remember from being the Secretary of State, I'm sorry, Secretary of Education under under President Trump. She is a billionaire heir to a couple fortunes and has also married into money. And her and her family have multiple named family foundations. And they also give money to other foundations, including the National Christian Foundation, which I believe is still the largest foundation in the world. I just looked up their financials and I believe they have over $1 billion in money moving to the foundation in, in 2021. The perpetuation of capitalism is a it is means the perpetuation of of the Christian right at this point when you have these organizations being funded at such large amounts by billionaires who are relying on capitalist systems. For example, the Wilkes brothers are almost are, are another enormous funder of the Christian right, and they are a fracking family. Fracking, obviously, when you I think it's when you push high pressured water into the ground to break up the ground to find oil. Is that right? Anyway, it (laughs) depends. (laughs) It it, it is the perpetuation of capitalism is, is directly tied to the perpetuation of the Christian right. And these churches and these nonprofit organizations in the United States don't need to pay taxes. So it is not only, you know, a theologically convenient way to distribute your wealth. It's also an economically convenient way to distribute your wealth. Foundations are a great tax write-off. Doing God's work. Doing God's work with the, with the millions that you raised by shooting high-pressure water into ground. Speaking of the environment, uh, there's been a bit of discourse in Australia in the last week about uh, the Greens Party here and their relationship with uh, turfs. They have a little bit of a mm. turf problem. Uh, your turf should be green, but your greens shouldn't be turfs. Uh, <laughs> one of the arguments that's been put forward from uh, a progressive writer, and a lot of air quotes happening in this question, uh, is uh-huh. that, that uh, you know, trans issues are an elite issue that we shouldn't be worried about because uh, you know the climate is about to collapse, uh, which is uh-huh. like taking class reductionism to a whole new level. <laughs> uh, sorry, could you speak to how, how can we combat this sort of rhetoric from the left? I could be naive, but I do think that any rhetoric that says, well, this fight is more important than this fight, and either of those fights are about, you know, the survival of actual people, I still feel like these are holdovers or bubbles of scarcity mindset where we have this moment of, oh, fuck, I'm, I'm going to, you know, my, my children are not going to survive the coming climate crisis. I need to work on that more than I need to make sure that trans people have you know, access to sports. But that, as you say, that is, that is such a a, a reductionist failure to see material impacts of anti-trans advocacy, right? I'm, we, we absolutely do need to address the upcoming climate crisis. And the people impacted by the climate crisis are going to be people who are experiencing homelessness, are going to be people who are closer to poverty, 
are going to be people who have less access to comprehensive healthcare. And that's trans people. Half of trans people in the United States live in poverty, live in less than $30,000 of household income a year. We can do both of these things at once. You can prioritize environmental activism in your daily life and also understand that the people impacted by climate crisis are those who are currently right now organizing for their own health and safety in other areas, Black people, Indigenous people, low-income people, people experiencing homelessness, people with disabilities. Like These are the people who are going to be impacted by high levels of heat, by floods, by droughts, by rising food prices. This isn't a either or, it's a yes and. In addition to uh, certain segments of the left, I suppose one thing that's um, curious about attacks upon uh, the rights of trans- transgendered uh, people is the coalitions that sometimes form between self-described radical feminists and the Christian right, and that's especially the case uh, in the United States perhaps. Can you, um, Heron, uh, describe um, something of the history of those forms of collaboration and and what do you think is kind of underpinning these coalitions, these, these attempts to uh, articulate a, a radical form of politics that arguably results in, you know, um, oppressive practices. I, I was reading a, a Twitter thread by Mallory from the um, Trans Safety Network. I recommend everyone follow the Trans Safety Network. She was kind of going back and looking at turf narratives from the early 2010s, so 2014, and noting how while they were still stra- trans exclusionary back then, I mean, back then, this is this is less than 10 years ago, there was much more sympathy for trans existence and trans lives um, than there is uh, antipathy and and antagonism right now. But I do want to go a little back, a little bit further back to Janice Raymond, who at the end of the 70s, early 80s, you know, wrote kind of like the anti-trans feminist novel, um, not sorry, not novel, tome, I guess, The Transsexual Empire. And then she was asked by, I believe it wasn't the Department of Health at the time, but it was maybe the Department of Veterans Affairs. I'm going to get this wrong, but I assume that you're listeners will be able to look it up if they needed to. She was asked to justify, to write a white paper justifying why trans people should not have their uh, trans-affirming care subsidized by the federal government as all of their other health care was covered by the, the federal government. And she's not a health expert. She was a theologian and philosopher who was also a feminist and wrote this book about how trans people are horrible. And I think that example typifies the relationship between, at some points, the federal government, especially during uh, Nixon and Trump eras, and the Christian right as well, partner with anti-trans feminists. It's that they are a convenient group to platform to give your anti-trans advocacy the veneer of a much broader base of support than it actually has. When you have a woman saying that she is a radical feminist and she is frightened of trans people, that certainly gives a perspective that the Christian right cannot claim by itself. I wrote a um, fairly comprehensive piece in 2020 looking at the efficacy of anti-trans feminists and found that, that by themselves, they are surprisingly ineffective. None of their own advocacy seems to ever work. Um, But when they are platformed and paired with the Christian right, they do give a weight to Christian right advocacy. For example, here in the United States, we have anti-trans feminists testifying 
on behalf of legislation that would prevent trans girls from competing in scholastic athletics. These people aren't attorneys. These people aren't trans people. They don't have trans people in their lives. Uh, the uh, anti-trans feminist who speaks most broadly about these issues, Beth Steltzer, she isn't even a longtime athlete. She wanted to try weightlifting. She happened to join weightlifting at the time when the weightlifting conferences were having a concerted conversation about trans inclusion. And so she decided to weigh in and she decided to weigh in on the side of trans exclusion. So to me, it is less of a, a less of a unusual partnerships or a, you know, unlikely bedfellow situation and more a situation of the Christian right, seeing exactly how utile these spokespeople can be. Um, and using them exactly for those purposes. And anti-trans feminists aren't the only ones they platform. The Christian right platforms anti-black black people and people who have had abortions who regret their abortions. The Christian right is excellent at platforming loud members of minority populations who undermine their own justice. I've just looked it up. Uh, Janice Raymond got a grant from the Department of State. Uh, State, thank they, you. They might have thought the transsexual empire had some oil. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to frack it, huh? <laughs> Erin, you touched on it a little before. Obviously, none of this ends with, uh, you know, trans women in sport. Uh, could you talk a little bit about, I guess, some of the eugenicist, or I don't think it's even mm. too hi- hyperbolic to say genocidal uh, aspects of you know, what is planned? My colleague, Fred Clarkson, who researches the Christian right, always says, believe what they tell you they believe until they show you otherwise. And the Christian right has shown us that they truly believe they are bringing about a Christ-like earth so that Jesus can return. And part of those beliefs includes gender essentialism, meaning that there are men and there are women, and those men and women get married, and they are perfectly complementary and fit one another, both physically and metaphysically. And have sex in order to procreate and never use birth control and never get abortions and have babies who will then spread God's message throughout the globe. And at a certain point, we must truly believe that this is what they want to bring about. And in order to bring about gender essentialism, there must be no trans people because they, we, trans people, non-binary people, I'm non-binary, do not fit within that narrow theological evangelical right understanding of what a Christly earth looks like. And then when you're looking at the beliefs of anti-trans feminists, like Janice Raymond, who said in the transsexual empire, excuse my very explicit language, she wrote that trans men are the final solution of women. That kind of language, you can't step back from that. You can't step back from saying that that you find trans people, you know, the, 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 the genocide of women. It is simply not true. It is unsupported by, by all, you know, peer-reviewed research. But you can easily see how that kind of rhetoric leads to what we saw, I think it was two weeks ago, with those anti-trans feminists in the UK, Helen Joyce and Helen Staniland, who said out loud that they don't think anyone should be able to transition. No one should be able to transition. We've heard this argument for youth. We've heard this argument up for youth up to 18. You know, let's let adults transition. I've even heard it for youth up to 25 or 23. Let's let, you know, 
older adults to transition, but to say that no one should be allowed to transition, that is some genocidal language right there. Erin, we had a, a federal election in Australia recently, and the uh, leader, uh, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison, made a controversial decision to appoint Catherine Deves, uh, a woman who was known for expressing some virulent contempt for transgendered people. She ended up uh, losing her seat, which again was it wasn't necessarily expected that she would win. There was some speculation that perhaps the Prime Minister was trying to capitalise upon her appeal in other electorates, and yet again uh, that seemed to have failed. So I guess I'm wondering, in terms of we have on on the one hand, you know, a well-funded Christian right that has uh, you know large sums of money available to it to to spend on um, all sorts of legal campaigns and and propaganda, uh, a solid base in the Republican Party uh, among Christian organisations. But are the kinds of policies that are being advanced actually popular? I'm I'm also thinking mm. about the fact that there has been you know increasing support for same-sex marriage, all sorts of legal and social changes that perhaps are placing the Christian right under some pressure. So I'm wondering if you, when you look around and, and you're researching these issues, do you find evidence that you know this is a you know this is not a battle that's been lost. This is a, a struggle that's ongoing. Public opinion here in the United States is is pretty strongly for the inclusion of trans people in non-discrimination protections. People in the United States here understand that trans folks face specific disparities and that preventing non-discrimination in places of housing and employment and public accommodations could be a way to address some of those disparities. But mis- and disinformation are having an impact. I think I saw that support for trans people playing sports is really down in the United States. But I would question, well, first of all, I would question the questions. I would love to see, you know, exactly what people were asked, since that matters a lot for the outcome. And then second, I would just question as, as I can't remember who did it, I can, I can find out right now. Um, someone asked a bunch of lawmakers in states now prohibiting trans girls from playing scholastic athletics, if they knew any trans athletes in their states, and not a single one knew any trans athletes. So, <laughs> you know, I, I guess I have a question, what percentage of people polled by these organizations to see if they support trans women playing sports know of a single trans athlete, I, I would say. I would say they don't. So the myths and disinformation are are making inroads into specific areas of life that, quote unquote, Americans see you know, is being impacted by trans justice for, for whatever that means. But yeah, public opinion in the United States holds fairly steady for understanding that trans people face specific disparities and they need specific ways to remedy them. And at the same time, disinformation is is definitely making inroads here as well. Uh, Heron, just finally, uh, how can we at a community level inoculate people against anti-trans rhetoric? Oh man, <laughs> I have I have a training I do for women's and feminist organizations to help them build the confidence they need to first determine if a particular situation is a good situation in which to combat rhetoric. Low, you know, if you're talking to a board member or a major donor of your organization, 
who has expressed some anti-trans rhetoric and you want to maintain that relationship, then yeah, you should probably do some some really deep figuring out of how you want to talk about disinformation and misinformation. But if it's, you know, just a troll on Twitter, people need to feel more confident just to block and uh, report and move on. So this training talks about grounding oneself in abundance instead of scarcity in the idea that we have enough resources globally to provide the conditions for all of us to be able to access health and safety and a life free from violence. We have that right now. You know, how many billions of dollars does Elon Musk have? We have the resources globally to create health and safety and a life free from violence for every single person on the globe. So when we root ourselves in abundance and we root ourselves in our idea of what justice is, the ability to live a life free from violence and the ability to access robust health and be a healthy person and get access to the care that you need. When you respond to mis and disinformation rooted in values, rooted in abundance, you're not, you're not, you find yourself not so much responding as disrupting. And that is my intent with this training. And I, again, going back to the failure of the American LGBT uh, machine to be doing exactly that, responding or or disrupting this disinformation rooted in abundance, rooted in our shared values, I think is, is a, a severe failure of our movement right now. So if you're out there, if you're listening, be confident, determine whether or not this is a relationship that you want to keep and a relationship you want to grow. And if it is a relationship you want to grow, ground yourself in abundance, know that you have the moral good upon your side, root yourself in your values, and you're going to be great. Excellent. Well, Heron, that's all we've got time for. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to follow you on Twitter, you're at Heron G. Thanks for coming on. I am. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. Uh, I'm just going to do a couple of other little wrap-up things. Uh, and then, there's, Yes, sorry, Andy? Sorry, Cam. There's one other thing. I'm just... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court apparently has struck down uh, Roe v. Wade. Just uh, I've just seen a headline now, um, so I don't know if we should uh, acknowledge that or. Um, yeah, I, I think we need to acknowledge it. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know if Heron would like to to comment on that. I'm just reading the headlines. I don't know the details, but um, yes. Um, I'm reading it now. Um, it looks as though the the draft. The draft leaked a couple, a month ago, drafted by Alito. Oh, it says the New York Times is saying echoed. The the decision echoed a leaked draft opinion published um, by Politico in early May. So it may be substantially different than the leaked draft, but regardless, it does look like Roe v. Wade, which again guaranteed a constitutional right to abortion in the United States, has been overturned, meaning that in many states abortion will be criminalized, and in many others it will be inaccessible. Not good, but uh, the result of <laughs> many decades of uh, campaigning from the Christian right. Yes, yes. Many successful decades of campaigning, many successful decades of um, of creating a straw man or a straw fetus in order to place pregnant people and people who could get pregnant as only one side of a quote-unquote debate whereas we know that fetuses don't have rights. Fetuses are not people, and pregnant people are. So we are going to see devastating returns from this. It's probably too much to ask you to prognosticate when this has just happened. What, what do you think the response to this is going to be? 
They did say they would riot. <laughs> the Liberals? They did say we would riot. <laughs> we better let you go. <laughs> no, no, I, no, I'm fine. <laughs> um, I mean, unless, unless y'all need to go. No, but no, no. I just read a report from an incredible organization here in the United States called Galvanize Action, G-A-L as in women, Galvanize Action, talking about how white women are among the populations in the United States most activated by threats to their inner circles, meaning they are among the most conservative people in the United States. And they are one of the largest portions of the electorate here in the United States as well. So while I dream of abortion riots, I am not optimistic that the white woman electorate will be able to muster the anger needed in response right now. Um, As I understand it, one of the effects of the ruling is that it now becomes uh, possible for states to outlaw, to criminalise further, I suppose, abortion. Um, But that would also mean that there are certain states in which it remains a legal practice. Is is that correct? That is correct. Yes. This merely says that there is no guaranteed constitutional right at the federal level And in fact, explicitly says that states have the right to determine whether or not people living in their state can access an abortion. So so I guess, how does that express itself regionally? I'm not familiar enough with Mm. US politics to say, but I understand that, uh, you know, a place like California, um, it's likely to remain uh, lawful, whereas somewhere like Texas or Georgia or somewhere else, it's less likely to be, or it's, it's, you know, there are all sorts of Variations, and one of the issues is that for women, and or to people who are undergoing pregnancy um, in those places, um, part of the problem is the being forced to travel vast distances, expend money, all those sorts of things, yes. um, further cementing access uh, to the privileged, who of course will remain in a position, presumably, to exercise their you know uh, rights. I suppose. Yes, when a when the consequence for an action is is a fine, that's not a crime; it's a price tag. I saw a, te- a, a TikTok that said that. <laughs> so yes, there is now a greater price tag on abortion, and so fewer people will be able to access that abortion. I'm looking at the New York Times that has a map of states. Um, so 20 states covering 25.5 million women of reproductive age, and as someone who is not a woman who was able to get pregnant at one time, I will also add that there are millions more non-binary and trans people who will be impacted by this Dobbs decision as well. There is an area of the United States covering Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, Missouri, Kentucky, West Virginia, in which you could travel a thousand miles and not be able to access an abortion. And that is going to be too high a price tag for millions of people. And yes, you're correct. On the other hand, we have 20 states um, that affirmatively protect a pregnant person's right to an abortion, and then 10 remaining states that the whether or not they criminalize or affirmatively protect the right to abortion will be dependent on legislation this year or which political party beco- comes into power next year. Uh, just finally, Heron, d- sort of underlying decision that's uh, being made here about 
the what power states do and don't have is this going to have a flow-on effect to sort of other areas in which people are likely to be oppressed i just wrote a piece on how trans people are likely to be um, impacted by this decision so again i haven't read the I haven't read the final decision that came out of the court just now. I've only read the Alito decision, which was leaked in early May. But he cited to multiple. So he, Alito, who was one of the justices of our Supreme Court, said that Roe was wrongly decided because there is no explicit right to abortion written in the Constitution. And if a right is not written into the Constitution, then the way to determine if it is a constitutional right is if it has a very long history and is very important to the order of law in the United States. And he argued that neither does abortion have a long history in the United States, which is obviously incorrect, nor does it um, impact the rule of law, which is also completely incorrect. But his reasoning undermines multiple rights that we take for granted now, or not take for granted, but utilize now, including the right to contraception, and the right to have sex with with whom one uh, chooses without fear of criminalization. Those two rights together, along with the right to abortion, are what the right to same-sex marriage or marriage equality was scaffolded on. So the fear, and this is a very real fear, is that without a right to privacy or with a right to privacy that is under attack now, we no longer have... We, we, we will soon or there will be litigation determining whether or not we have a right to access contraception, whether or not we have a right to marry, uh, whether or not we have a right to have sex with whom we choose without being criminalized. And then finally, whether or not we have a right to marry the people whom we love. This is a, a terrifying decision. And I'm having meetings canceled and rescheduled and my notifications are an absolute mess. So I am going to go. <laughs> yeah, we, we better let you get to it. Thanks so much for joining us, Heron. Thank, Thank you, you so much. This has been truly horrible. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Andy, that's our show. Yes, it was, Cam. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, we have got some people to thank from the Radiothon, including Sharon. And, of course, Ben. And, of course, Ben. And many more Anonymouses. Thank you, Anonymouses. And there are a few other people that uh, did donate on the phones who uh, I will get your names to thank at some point. Listeners, if you did uh, make a pledge and you haven't paid it yet, uh, I hope you're listening to this on the day that it comes out. You need to pay that right away (laughs) so that you can have your tax affairs in order. Now, my suspicion is that listeners to the show are all across their taxes. Uh, So this doesn't need to be said, but just in case, if you're one of the outliers, uh, get it sorted out so you can put it in, you get it back off your tax. I don't know what good it'll do, but something, right? What did Kerry Packer say? If you're not donating to 3CR to minimise your tax, you're an idiot? I think that was that's a precise quote, Cam. That was the gist of it. Yeah. All right. We'll be back next week. See you then. Bye-bye. Donate to this year's Radiothon. Call 94198377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. And remember, every donation is tax deductible. So donate now and get your tax deductible receipt before the 30th of June. 3CR. Keep community strong. Online and in cinema. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival will be running online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July. 
canvassing the world's best docos from South by Southwest, Tribeca and Hot Docs, as well as the best Australian content. Check out the lineup and book today at mdff.org.au or cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter.